The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 17. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart was still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. Still I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. But what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all who have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good to see you all. Uh, my name is Garrison. Uh, I'm one of the pastors. Uh, if, if you've been around not for that long, um, you've probably never seen me up here before. I've been on paternity leave the last 10 weeks. Uh, back in, thank you. Back in February, we welcomed our son, Reed. Um, so excited to get to be back with you all looking at what the good life is found in Ecclesiastes. Let's pray together and we'll hop in. Father God, we thank you for the truth that we just sang, that you are all we need. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning, even studying this book and this passage. It's heavy. Um, it's not as cheerful. It doesn't have um, a happy ending necessarily like we would like um, sometimes when we study your word. Yet it is there and it is good. So be with us. Send your spirit. Help us to, to grapple with this this morning and shape us to be more and more like the people that you designed us to be. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So where do we look for the good life? That is the question that we're looking at this series. Um, this past week, I was on my way to a meeting, and I had to stop for gas. So I get out of my car. I reluctantly start pumping $4 gas into my car. I'm very sad. 
and a video comes on the little screen, as it does. Um, I normally mute the video, which you can do, pro-life tip. But I knew I wasn't going to be there that long because I was pumping $4 gas, so I kind of just let it ride. And it caught me. The video said, at blank company, we help people find the good life. What is the good life? Well, that's up to you to find out. So just like that. And in my head, I was like, that's so stupid. That's so not helpful. You didn't help me do anything. Also, I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to fall for that type of marketing. I know where the good life is found. All the while, I am militantly trying to keep the number, the dollar amount of gas under $15. Like I get to $14.85, and it's like with surgical precision, I'm toggling with the handle to keep it there. If I go over, it's like my day is much worse than it would have been. I'm having a terrible day. Why? Well, because I have an internalized belief about where the good life is found. And it comes out every time that I pump gas. I don't want to spend money. I don't want to spend money on gas. And I know, yes, you can make fun of me for this. I know I'm going to have to be back before the normal person would, right? If you just filled up. I got made fun of extensively for this at Teaching Team. But I can't do it. I cannot spend more than $15 for gas. It doesn't matter what the price is. And that's because I have my own idea for the good life. I want more money in my bank account for as long as humanly possible. Even if it's a dumb decision. That's the good life for me. And you can judge me for it. You probably are. But I think if you were honest, you're not that much different from me. See, if we were honest, we, along with millions of Americans, believe and live as if the good life were found in more. Having more. That's the American dream, is it not? Having more or better. More money, more gas, maybe. More stuff, more joy, more sex, more ease, more fun, more success. How much more? I'm not sure. But definitely more than I have right now. I'm sure about that. Yet, if you look at the people that have the most, the ultra-rich, the famous, celebrities, the successful, intelligent, you start to see an interesting trend. So take Madonna. If you don't know who that is, if you're Gen Z, that's like Beyonce in the 80s. That's was a Tim joke. It actually landed. I didn't expect that. I'm going to be honest. Good job, man. Madonna, her career has spanned over three decades. That's really rare for a musician. She has, she's had nine number one hit singles, 39 Billboard Music Awards, has won seven Grammys, has sold more than 300 million records worldwide, and is recognized as the best-selling female recording artist of all time. And some of you are like, for now, Taylor Swift's coming. She was quoted once by Vogue magazine saying this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. It's not just one story. You have Jim Carrey, successful actor. Some of you love him. He's won awards. He's made millions. He's made the best Grinch movie in existence. Yet he was quoted saying this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. But this isn't just an American thing. It's not just an American 
ultra-rich celebrity thing. You can see this across time and even across the world. Leo Tolstoy, the readers probably know who that is. He was a Russian author in the 1800s, one of the best novelists ever. Super influential, wise, intelligent. He wrote War and Peace, Anna Karina. Late in his life, he writes, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? So we've got this ultra-successful pop star, beloved, who never feels like she's done enough to prove herself, one of the most successful actors of all time, saying we've been tricked into thinking money and fame and success and getting to do everything we want is the good life. And we have one of the most brilliant writers of all time saying, even if I succeed in everything I want, what's the point at the end of my life? The pattern would seem to suggest that the good life is not found in having it all. Now, there's an abundance of these stories out there, and I think we're all a little bit cynical about them. We find them interesting, at least, and I think those stories, they intrigue us because there's something in us that thinks, all right, Mr. Carey, Jim, come on. I would love to be rich and famous and do everything I want and test what you're saying. I think you're wrong. I think if I had everything that you have, I would be fine. We get annoyed by these successful, rich, intelligent, famous people talking about how their life at the top of the mountain is not all it's cracked up to be. There's something in us that wants to challenge them. If we had the most we'd probably be fine. So the question becomes, are we right? Is the good life actually found in having more or the most? Or is what's going on with those unhappy celebrities actually reality? Well, according to the preacher in Ecclesiastes, what's going on with those celebrities is absolutely real. That if we took our desire for more to its natural end, having the most, it would be fleeting. We'd be unhappy. We'd be unsatisfied. It's going to tell us that even if you got you all you ever wanted, it wouldn't be enough. And that's what he's going to nail down this week, is that more is meaningless. More is meaningless. So if you remember last week in chapter 1, the preacher begins by saying, all is vanity. He says it over and over again. All is vanity like chasing the wind. And now he's going to prove it to us. He's going to show his work by telling us about this experiment that he himself participated in firsthand, where he's going to test a hypothesis. Can anything in this world actually satisfy me? That's what he's asking. Can anything under the sun make me happy? Is more actually fulfilling? And what's shocking is that even though he was an ancient Near Eastern king, he chases after some of the same stuff that we chase after today. So go to Ecclesiastes 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. He writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. This is the first 
part of the experiment. The first thing the preacher tests is more fun. Less stress, more fun. The preacher says, I'm going to test the boundaries of all life has to offer. And he starts with joy, fun. I'm going to test myself with pleasure. I'm going to enjoy myself as much as I can. I'm going to laugh. I'm going to cheer my body with wine, is what he says. He's going to try some cabs, maybe a nice blend, nice white. We don't know exactly what this looks like, but we do know that he's a king. So the resources that he has at his disposal are way past what you and I have. So don't think this is like wine night with the gals. Think of a feast with thousands of people, most likely, in a palace, roaring laughter, music, amazing food, anything that you could think of, and an endless list of the best wine available. He's making memories. He's making relationships. He's having a blast. But he doesn't stop there. That's just part one. Keep going, verse four. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He tries more success, more achievement. He says the, the parties were fun, but how about building an empire? So he starts by building his house. As a king, he wants to be great, both to be remembered, but also to literally be the greatest king on earth with the greatest kingdom. So he starts by building a palace, and then a city, and then a kingdom. He becomes an elite gardener. doesn't just have an eight by eight. He plants entire vineyards, parks, and trees. He's got such a massive amount of plant life, he needs swimming pools, minus the chlorine, of course. He's got to keep these things alive somehow. Can't water them by hand. He makes these works himself. So I did this myself. I've made something myself. I've arrived. I've won the game of Monopoly, but in real life. And again, he doesn't stop. Verse 7, he says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. Tries fun, tries success. Now he shifts to comfort. Or you could say money or possessions. It all kind of fits in together. It's ultra successful. He builds his kingdom, and now it's time to enjoy it. Six, sits back to enjoy this massive stack of wealth that he's accumulated for himself. He wants for nothing. He doesn't have to exert himself. He doesn't cook. He doesn't clean. But it's not just that. He's also got endless entertainment, right? It says, I have singers on call. Not just Spotify. He's got live entertainment. John Mayer and Beyonce serenading him in a bubble bath. Right there, on call. Snap of the fingers. It's unimaginable. And still, he keeps going. Look back at verse 8. He says, In many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So he shifts to sexual pleasure. He tries more sex. So it was common at this time for royalty, for a king to have a wife, oftentimes multiple wives as well as concubines, who were essentially secondary wives that existed just for sexual pleasure or at times providing an heir if the king's wife couldn't conceive. So the preacher is essentially saying, I had uninhibited sexual pleasure. 
I got to have sex with basically whoever I wanted, whenever I wanted. So by all worldly standards so far, the guy is just doing well, right? By worldly standards, he's doing it all. See how he reflects on this potential good life. Verse 9 says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. It says, I became the greatest. I surpassed everyone. I enjoyed it. This was my reward. Now, we'd expect him to draw some type of conclusion there, right? Like, kind of wrap this up in a bow. I've done a lot. I'm ready to be done. No, he has more. One more thing. Verse 12 says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The last thing he tries is more wisdom. More wisdom. Preacher studies wisdom versus foolishness. So yeah, I became great, but I needed more. So maybe if the life of pleasure and success isn't working, could it be found in the life of wisdom? Now biblically, this means living life correctly and living life well versus the life of the fool, which is careless, living life without correct knowledge, unaware of ultimate reality. So he pursues the life of wisdom. Maybe if chasing every desire and whim didn't cut it, the path towards the good life could be found in seven steps towards a better me, right? Doing life better than other people. Maybe that's the good life. Now let's pause there. He just tried a lot of things in a very few amount of verses. And maybe he's not tired of it, but I think we are. It's a lot of stuff, and it's a little bit ridiculous. And I think if we're honest, it's also pretty unrelatable, right? Like, I'm telling you that this is what we do. And you're like, not really, though. Not really. Like, I'm not a king. I'm not absorbently wise and wealthy and successful. I'm not planting crazy vineyards. I can barely keep a tomato alive. I'm not all wise. I'm not living in lavish palaces. I'm not throwing parties for thousands of people. I'm not running around having as much sex as I want to with whoever I want. The experiment feels a little bit unrelatable, hard to draw a conclusion close to home. After all, we don't, we don't really do all that. But what if we just sort of rewrote it, reimagined it for us, for modern Westerners? You could say it's Ecclesiastes 2, the Citizen's Church translation. Just run it from the top. It says, I set out to test my heart to see where the good life is found. I said to my heart, enjoy yourself. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So I decided to go out to a couple breweries this Saturday, but not get drunk, but maybe just go around and get a little buzzed, cut the edge. Went to a lot of wine tastings, a lot of wine. I tried all the best spots in Southland. I spent a little too much money. I made great works by working overtime. Just try to get promoted as many times as possible. I crushed all of my goals at the expense of my family, friends, and God. I made good money. I was very comfortable. I had great possessions. I bought a truck, and then I had to trade it in for the family van. 
I bought a house, but it wasn't big enough or nice enough, so I bought another one. I also gathered for myself a very comforting number in my savings account. I got singers, both men and women, on my very perfectly curated Spotify playlist, and I posted about multiple concerts on my Instagram. Are you jealous? I had lots of hobbies. I golfed, I gymmed, I gardened, I knitted, I Netflixed, I chilled, I went on vacation twice, twice in a year. I gathered for myself friends, and I downloaded Hinge when I got lonely to message a couple people before deleting. I had many concubines in the form of pornography and fantasy. I sought wisdom and became the best version of myself. Found the right schedule, the right diet, the right workout, the right routine. Became the greatest Enneagram one of all time. My family had the best Christmas card ever. And my kids, they're going to get everything they want to. Does that sound a little bit closer to home? Does that sound a little bit more relatable? And maybe you still are like, I don't really, maybe, I don't really do a lot of that. I would be willing to bet I at least described what you fantasize about. What you think about when you have a dull moment or as you drift off to sleep. See, we want the same things that the preacher chased after. It just looks a little bit different. So yeah, I don't need to be a king. I don't need to be Madonna or Jim Carrey or Tolstoy. I just need a little bit more than I have right now. I just need what's right around the corner. Just a little bit better than I have right now. If I just had a little bit more. I just had a little bit more blank. What would you fill in that blank? Maybe it's multiple things. What's that for you? What do you fill that in with? Maybe a better way to say it is if you just snapped your fingers and all of your problems were fixed, what changed? What do you have more of? What do you have less of? Because that's where you believe the good life is. That's where you actually think the good life is found. If you snap your fingers and your problems are fixed, what's different? What do you have more of? There's an extra zero or two on the end of your bank statements, your account balance. The job that's just a little bit more exciting, or fulfilling, or engaging, or even easy. A little bit more house. Want that extra bedroom half bath. Maybe just a little bit better version of what you already have. Like a newer, nicer car. A newer, nicer couch. A newer, nicer TV. A newer, nicer computer. A newer, nicer baby stroller. A newer, nicer bed. Newer, nicer furniture. You can go through that all day with anything you have. Maybe it's just like, I want less stress, more fun. I just want to have some ease and comfort. I want to go on as many vacations as possible, go on as many trips as possible, go to as many concerts as possible, make as many memories as possible. You're constantly living for the weekend. Maybe it's a little bit more sex with your spouse or a different spouse or just a spouse. Maybe it's that better version of yourself. You got life figured out. You're more in shape, you're more intelligent, you're more disciplined. It's just a version of you that has it together. All of that is just a little bit more. It's right around the corner, a little bit better. So sure, I don't need it all. I'm not greedy. But I do need a little bit more. And I'll experiment all the same. 
or I'll fantasize about it, all the same with some sort of cocktail or more that if I just had, my life would be better. My life would be more satisfying. And the sad reality is we land exactly where the preacher lands with his crazy experiment. Skip to verse 17. See his verdict. He says, so I hated life. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He says, it's all vanity. As Jenny read, you see in verse 11, he talks about the success, the pleasure, the sex, all of this stuff. He says, it evaporates. It doesn't work. If you get it, it's gone. You need more. He talks about all of um, the wisdom in verse 14. He says, wisdom's great, but if that's all I have, well, the most wise version of myself and the least wise version of myself, what's the point? We both die. The best version of me, the worst version on earth, we're both in the ground. So it's all meaningless. See, the preacher's life is stuffed full of everything you want. And his conclusion is, I hated life. I hated it. I chased it all down, and I hated my life. That is a crazy statement. It's offensive to our lifestyles. He says, because it's like chasing the wind. It's vanity. You get it, and it's gone. Try to get it, but it's like chasing the wind. It doesn't last. Which, if you're anything like me, you can doubt it. You're like, okay. But still, a little bit more will be good. But what the preacher is trying to say the point he's trying to make is that because he had the most, we can apply it to us and see that our desire for just a little bit more, it won't work either. And he's very clear on why. Throughout the whole book, but in this chapter as well, verse 20, skip there. It says, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. That's the key point. I have to leave it behind. This is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. If last week you were hoping to get a little bit better news, I am sorry. It is not getting better. He lands in the same exact place that he does in chapter 1, and he'll continue to say it. He says our desires are elusive. You try to go after them, and you're going to come up empty-handed. Or you do get what you wanted, and you realize, I have to leave this to somebody else. I don't get to keep it forever, which is the key point he's trying to make. That death reveals how foolish our pursuit for more is. Death is a wake-up call. It should be. We don't like to think of it. But it is there, looming, coming for us. Which we'll talk about more thoroughly in a couple weeks. Got a death sermon. Mark your calendars. But for now, the preacher says, when you fantasize about having more and more, when you give your life to chasing after more and more, at some point, you realize, what, I have 40 years left? 50? Maybe less. We have no idea what could happen on any given day. And I'm spending all of my time unhappy. 
I'm spending all of my energy unhappy with what I have, unhappy with who I am, with my current circumstances and my current life status. Everything we accumulate, if we're lucky, goes to a family member or friend. But ultimately, over time, it all goes to a landfill. All personal progress is great, but by itself, it is meaningless because we die. And like he says, we're forgotten over time. We have 40 or 50 years, that's it. The best life under the sun, as the preacher puts it, is a hollow life. Death makes us ask, is this really all there is? Which all this is incredibly morbid. I won't lie to you, it is. But this is what the book says. And we as the people of God, we have to grapple with this stuff. It's not something we can ignore. It's there. We're called to actually grapple with this, wrap our heads around it. So we have to ask, what do we do with this? How do we actually apply this and live out of it? Which we'll do, just like last week, we've got three invitations. Three invitations, just like last week, different order, same deal. The first invitation that we see in Ecclesiastes 2 is to sacred mundanity. Sacred mundanity. Look at uh, verse 18, and then I'm going to skip to 24. Just hone in on those. Preacher says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. It's a very weird pairing of verses. In one chapter, he goes, wine, feasting, pleasure, and toil are completely worthless. Can't find the good life in them. Two, there's actually nothing better than eating, drinking, pleasure, and toil. What? How do we do that? The whole chapter, he says, eating, drinking, toil on earth is vanity. What's the prescription for it? Eating, drinking, and toil. I don't, I don't know what to say, but that's the catch-22 of Ecclesiastes 2. Chasing sex, work, and possessions is not the good life. But also, if there is a good life to be found, all of those things will probably have some part in it. How? What do we make of that? What do we do with that? Why? That's because everything you have now is from the hand of God. See, part of the issue with us is we think what we have now is mundane, it's boring, so we want more to kind of escape that. What he's saying, no, what you have now is from the hand of God. The problem is not the stuff. The problem is not the stuff. So many things that the preacher tries are from God, given to be enjoyed, but it's when we look for the good life in more of them, that's when we get into trouble. That's when it becomes a problem. Ecclesiastes shows us that when our desires become king, we suffer. Which is not a unique idea to Ecclesiastes. It's all throughout the scriptures we experience this too. Chasing our desires, however big or small, and trying to find the good life in them, it always leads to disappointment, sin, and suffering. It will not work. And God, in the scriptures, in our own lives, is constantly inviting us back to ultimate reality. Life with Him is what satisfies us. I love how Isaiah puts it, chapter 55 of Isaiah. 
He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. It's almost like saying trying to find the good life in more is a little bit like spending your last dollar on a Netflix subscription when you're starving to death. We've, that's a ridiculous thing to do. Don't do that. You weren't designed to be satisfied with Netflix. It can't fill your hungry belly. Come to me. Let me feed you. Be satisfied by life with God. So yes, the stuff is good. Just like the preacher said. But it can't fill you up. C.S. Lewis famously puts it this way. Talking about our desires. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. A lot of you have heard that quote before. It's pretty famous. It's great. I love that quote. And something key about it is he's not saying you have to just do away with your desires, become a robot. No. It's that we ground our desires in Christ. And then we're freed up to actually enjoy things for what they are. Not for, not, not for what they were not meant to be. So when you realize work can't satisfy you, then work becomes a gift to be enjoyed. We're actually participating in what God has designed us to do. When you realize sex can't satisfy you, then sex within God's design becomes a gift to be enjoyed. When you realize more possessions can't satisfy you, you can actually start to enjoy the things you have now. And when you realize money can't satisfy you, you can enjoy it, and even more, you can bless other people with it. Everything you have is a gift. The good life is not found in completely new circumstances, in completely new stuff. The good life is not found in escaping the mundanity of your life today. It's found in experiencing God now in your day-to-day -day life. And I can't say this more bluntly, until you actually believe that and come to grips with it, you will not be happy. You will not be happy with what you have and with your life until you see this. Please stop chasing the wind. <laughs> That's what the preacher's saying. Please stop chasing the wind. Death is coming. It will wipe it all away. Don't miss the good God has given you, which leads us to the second invitation, and that sacred honesty. Sacred honesty. Very simply, we're invited to agree with the preacher. You all know, we all know that he's right. We all know it. Deep down, we know it's true. And if you don't, I'd invite you to maybe see that you've been hoodwinked. You've been blindfolded. That you're too caught up in the pursuit for more to actually see. And today is the day to take off your blindfold. It's like what Tim talked about last week. We have to stop pretending. We know it doesn't work. Just think about this. If you own a home, you obviously wanted a home at one point. You wanted to buy a house. You're like, yay, equity. It's great. And then you bought a house. And you're like, okay, cool. I can... We need to paint. And... Uh... We got some work to do. I need some pro. I, I got to do some projects. It's not there, you know. And that went fine. And then something broke, and that was rough. 
I mean, you're like, I, I need to fix the yard, looking rough, you know, curb appeal. And then something else broke, and then weeds sprouted up. You're like, this is really frustrating. And then a neighbor did an addition, and it looks great, and you can't afford it. And then a friend bought a house that's way better than your house. Are we not tired of being frustrated by that stuff? It's all vanity. Are you tired? You can apply that same line of reasoning to a job, to anything that you own. How many of you are so excited to get to the weekend? Every week, you think about Saturday every day of the week. And all you think about is rest, recouping, and then Saturday comes and goes before you know it, and it's Sunday night, and you're anxious and just hoping to get to the next Saturday. Are you not tired of that cycle? It's vanity. I love putting it this way. Think about your past self a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Many of us thought we were a marriage ceremony away from the good life. One kid away from the good life. Is it working? Maybe. Maybe we thought we were one move away, one job away. Some of us are stressed out about money right now, that if you showed the version of you 10 years ago your pay stubs and bank statements, they would be shocked. They'd be like, you're living large. You've arrived. You're big shot. I'll, I'll say this for me. 10 years ago, I didn't know any of you, pretty much. I think I maybe knew one person in the room. The good life to me was being a pastor who preaches on Sundays, getting, a part, get, getting to be a part of a church plant, hopefully to Charlotte, being married, having a house, and having a job that pays me pretty well. I really struggled. I was depressed at times when I didn't have those things. I have all of them now, and guess what? I forget I even wanted them. I have a completely new list of things. That's just how it works. We get them, and then it's like, I need the next thing. Might that be an invitation? Might that be an invitation to us? Chasing the next thing, chasing more. It's all vanity. You're just going to want more of it. Then you realize it's all going to be gone one day. We have limited time, so be honest in the face of reality. Wake up and ask, is there more than this? There is. It's there. And that's the last invitation to sacred joy. Sacred joy. Verse 25, he finishes with this. He says, For apart from him, who can eat, who can have any enjoyment? Sacred joy. He says, Apart from him, who can have any enjoyment? It begins and ends with God. How? This book's depressing. How gracious is our God to kind of lift our head out of the sand, though? to show us where the good life is actually not found. Like, we've read this multiple times, and I, and I don't want it to become white noise, but think about the picture the preacher is painting for us, right? He says it's like chasing the wind. Think about it. Think about what that looks like. Like, seriously, close your eyes if you have to. Imagine you're in a park. Sunny day, light breeze, you're sitting on a bench, reading a book. Out of the corner of your eye, you see somebody. They're kind of far away, 50 feet. And you notice they're running around in circles and now zigzagging. They're looking up and down. They're reaching out their arms. 
I don't know, weirdly, and they're clamping their hands down and then opening it up. There's nothing there, and they just continue to do it. They get closer to you. They're 10 feet away. And now you can tell that when they reach out and open it up, they yelp. They say, dang it! They get closer to you. They're two feet away. You say, excuse me, what are you doing? And they say, isn't it obvious? I'm chasing the wind. I'm in the game of tag with the wind. I'm about to win. You would be afraid of this person. <laughs> You'd be concerned for their life. Concerned for yours. You would want to say, hey, sir or madam, no, you will not win this game. Please stop and maybe get some help. Let me help you. This is ridiculous. It is vanity. That is us in the park, not on the bench. We're the one chasing the wind, scaring the children, spending all of our time and energy on what is destined to fail. And God, via the preacher, is graciously saying, stop this. Stop being a fool. Stop making a fool of yourself. This does not work. And that's a gift to us. Tells us where not to find the good life. But not only does he do that, he also shows us where to find the good life. A life with God. As we said last week, and we will keep uh, referring to it, the good life that we are invited into as the people of God is one, it's having a place to belong. Having a place. Having a place to call home. It's having work to do. Having a place, having work to do, it's having a people to belong to in that place, all in the presence of God. What a beautiful picture. That's what we were all designed for, not to run after all of this other stuff, but to be rooted with people that love us in a place for the long haul with God. That's where the good life is found, where you know His voice, where you see the gifts He's already given to you as blessings. Only when you find your satisfaction in life with Him can you actually enjoy your life. And when you do, all the monotony, all the things you have now, the version of you now, the people in your life now, they'll actually be enjoyable. You'll see them as blessings, not stepping stones to the next thing. Your mind does not have to be consumed with this stuff anymore. What a beautiful invitation. I bet you would sleep better at night if you actually were resting in this. You will not and do not need to be constantly thinking about how to chase after the good life because we are already invited into it now because of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that sometimes your kindness is hard truth. You tell us and you invite us to wake up. But we also thank you that you say, come to you, find what is actually satisfying. That you give us real bread, real water. God, we thank you. Honestly, we thank you for this reality that created things do not satisfy us because it leads us to you. 
Spirit, help us to see that. Jesus, it's hard to grapple with. I can feel it. And it's, it's convicting because we're caught up in it. So Lord, any, any desires that have turned into idols in our hearts, pray that you would break them. Jesus, we thank you that the invitation to the good life begins and ends with you. Begins and ends with what you've done for us on the cross. You died for us to reconcile us to yourself, also to one another, so that we can have a place, we can have a people, we can have work to do all in your presence. We thank you for that. Pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.